Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. As, we were list- as I was singing and listening to the songs we sung this morning, I recognized how many of those songs really capture what we want to talk about today, especially in Christ alone. It, it really speaks to many of the topics we'll talk about today. We're on our second sermon of a series, a short series on what every Christian must know about different things. And uh, we're looking at Jesus Christ today. Uh, this is only our second sermon on this subject, but we're looking at what every Christian must know about Jesus Christ. And we'll start by returning to the Ligonier uh, Lifeway Research Survey that came out in this year, in 2022, called The State of Theology. And to the question, we, we discover uh, in this question, it says this, Is Jesus the first and greatest of beings created by God? An amazing 50% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, that Jesus is a created being. To the statement, just in case people misunderstood that question, there's a clearer statement. It says, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That's up from 30%, 30 percent to 43% in two years. These are disturbing statistics, especially when we realize that only 7% of, the, of uh, Americans identify as being evangelicals. But if half of that 7% does, do not believe that Jesus is God, and about half, half of that number believe that Jesus was a created being, then our statistics on evangelicals has sprung a major leak. That's a problem when you claim to be the most conservative of Christians, but do not believe that Jesus Christ is totally God and that He was created at some point in time. The question that comes to our mind is, what happened to evangelicalism? In the 1970s, in modern times, if we could trace it back there, uh, when the consumer church or the seeker-sensitive church began, the, be- the best-known models of Willow Creek and Saddleback, the well-intentioned leaders at that time mostly in California, were trying to figure out ways to reach the group of people that were called at that point turned on and tuned in and, and dropped out, what we call the hippies today. How do you reach that generation of the 1960s and 70s with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the, what they determined, and it slowly spread, was that the only way to reach them is to give them a Christianity that fit their lifestyle and their desires, their taste in music and entertainment. Evangelicalism, or Christianity, really has never been the same. Evangelism now becomes felt-need-oriented. How can we reach people by telling them that Christ meets their felt needs? Uh, People like that message. People turn to that message. And that began to spread, and it began to spread in churches as well, and dominated churches slowly across the nation until it became the dominant structure of today. Churches... Uh, began preaching and teaching topics on, on therapy, uh, therapeutic topics, how to feel better about yourself, your self-image, self-help, and so it different forms of the prosperity gospel. After all, every survey put out by Barna and Gallup said this is what people want. If you want people to come to your church, give them this stuff. Tell them how they can be happy, how they can be successful, how they can prosper, how they can thrive, and they will come to your church. You will attract them to your church. And it worked, I would say. This form of Christianity has taken on a name in recent times. It's known as moralistic therapeutic deism. It's moralistic in the sense that it's trying to help people to be better, 
so it's moralistic. It's, it's therapeutic because it's saturated with, with therapeutic ideas that, that also saturate and are in line with our, our society. And it involves God. It doesn't leave God totally out. It's de- deistic. That is, God is there, and occasionally he shows up. If when you really need him, you can turn to God, and you can plead with God, and he, co- and he comes around. But for the most part, our lives are lived as if God did not exist. More recently, churches have taken on a different direction, and they have started to emphasize community. Notice how often churches talk about community, and how often their sign and their literature and their sermons are about community. And away from Bible teaching, theology, learning biblical truth in general. Uh, this is evident in the structure of many churches. Uh, if, you, if you jump around to churches at all and go to church to church, especially any church of any size, uh, you'll find that most churches today, and I can say this pretty clearly and pretty certainly, most churches today are structured around two, two basic elements, uh, weekend celebration or event or worship service or whatever they might want to call it, and a weekend event and small groups. That's the two elements that make up and compose most churches. But there's a problem here. Most of the weekend events are geared towards unsaved people in the area of evangelism. They're geared towards entertainment. They're geared towards great music and amusement and not towards Bible teaching. And so the Word of God is not being taught there. Small groups are very handy for community. We have our own small groups once a month. And they're very useful for community and fellowship and getting to know one another. But they're absolutely lousy places for teaching the Word of God for the most part. That isn't where that usually takes place. And so there's very little space in most churches today for a good Bible, solid teaching of the Word of God because there's no structure for that. In time, then, people have lost the appetite for the Word of God. That's not on their agenda. They've gotten used to to uh, bad food. Somebody, I just read somebody this week said, if, if you're in a famine, you'll eat mice and rats. And if we're in a famine for the Word of God, we're eating and, and nibbling on junk food and not on the truth. And that has spread throughout much of evangelicalism. Give us some great music. Put on a good show. Uh, a bit of fellowship thrown in there. And, and, uh, and a lot of good programs. And we'll be satisfied. But if you don't give us those things, we'll just go right down the street to a church that will. And that's the dilemma that the modern evangelical church faces today. It is predictable then that biblical illiteracy would eventually gain the upper hand and become epidemic. And it has. And in this anemia is not just too bad, folks. It is devastating. It is deadly to the soul of the individual. It is destructive to the churches of Jesus Christ all across our land and all across the world. So the bottom line is that it, it, we now have an evangelical church, and I say this not with glee but with great sadness because I didn't grow up with this. We have an evangelical church today that does not understand even the basics of Christianity and the basics of biblical truth as are shown by all these surveys. These evangelicals claim to love God and they'll, they'll throw their hands up in the air and put their heads back and, and sing songs with all their heart, but they don't know who He is. And you're delusional when you think you love someone you don't know. And therein rise the great danger. Our subject today is none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, what is it that we must know? Must know about Jesus Christ. Now we could turn to many things. And many themes and many scriptures, but we're going to limit our time to just a few because that's all the time we've got. And first of all, in John chapter 1, we find out that He is God. 
In verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. John begins his gospel, this great gospel, by talking about the Word, or the Greek word is logos. The logos, to the Jews, the logos was deity. To the Greeks and the Romans, the logos was the principal force behind the universe. If you're listening to any television or whatever, you're hearing people all the time now talk about the universe did this and the universe wants that and the universe this or that. That is old-fashioned uh, Roman and Greek philosophy that's come to the modern era. And it is a, it's the same view. We have a power. We have a force. It's impersonal. There's no person there. It's a force that runs the whole universe. And the Greeks called it the Logos. And so when John uses this word, he's talking to Hebrews who believed in the de- that, that the Logos was deity to the Greeks, who believed it was some power in the universe, equal to the universe. To everybody, it meant communication. The word means communication, right? God is going to communicate with us. In verse 14, by the way, just so we you know we're on page, he identifies the Logos with Jesus Christ. So he is beginning with a very philosophical direction, but he comes down to who the Logos is, and the Logos is none other than Jesus Christ. What do we need to know about Jesus Christ? What do we need to know to be saved? Because we have to know who He is. Number one, that He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. And you say, well, Gary, man, I already know that. You're just rehearsing old stuff. Who, who cares? I mean, we, we believe it, but come on. You need to really spend a sermon on these kinds of things. Well, everybody knows this, right? Except for half of all evangelicals. And that's the most conservative of Christians. Did you know that the church has been dealing with this subject since almost the beginning? Many heresies have shown up. Arianism, the most well-known. In A.D. 325, a council was called at Nicaea, in which a man named Arius stood up and said, From my study of Scripture, Jesus Christ is not fully God. He's partly God. He's kind of a God. But not fully God. He's not of the same essence as God. He was created by the Father God. And so he is not truly and completely and fully God. He's deity, but he's not divine. He is a God, but not fully God. His opponent was a guy named Athanasius. And Athanasius stood up and said, that's wrong. The scriptures are abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is God. He is all, he's, co, he's eternal with the Father. He's, he's co-equal. He's co-eternal. He's of the same essence of the Father. He is fully and totally and completely God. And for that belief of, of Athanasius, which became the dogma, orthodoxy within Christianity, eventually he was exiled from his church and his home five times for believing that Jesus Christ was God. Of course, that's ancient history, right? We don't believe that anymore, right? Except all Unitarians believe that. All Jehovah Witnesses believe that. All Mormons believe that. Almost all cults believe that. Many liberal churches believe that. In other words, about half of all people who claim to be Christians of some kind believe that Jesus Christ is not God. What does John say about that? He says that Jesus Christ was the Word Jesus Christ was in the beginning. He always was. He has always been. Uh, one theologian translates it this way. When the beginning began, the Word was already there. I like that. Time, even before time, He was there. 
And this means that he was, he was before all else and he created all else. He's the origin of all other things. All has been created through him and by him and for him, we learn in the epistles. There never was a time when the word was not. And there's absolutely nothing that does not depend upon him for, for his existence and for his sustenance. Secondly, he was God. The word was with God and the word was God. So let's go with the second phrase. The word was with God. That word could be, tra- this could be translated face to face with God. He is in the closest possible intimate relationship with, with the Father. Face to face with God. How do you like it when somebody gets in your space? Now, there was a sitcom out a few years ago in which they did a whole episode on, on close talkers. Some of you might remember that, where somebody gets right up in your face and talks, you know, so that you can, you can, you can smell their breath, you can, you can get a little spittle on if you want to, and, and they're right there, and your eyes are going crossed as you look at these people. Ever seen anybody like that? You know, I, I've done that before. I backed up, and I backed up, and I backed up, and I got to the wall, and there's nothing left I could do, you know? I don't like it. If you do it to me, I might punch you in the throat. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't like it. Do you like it? Punch me in the throat if I ever do that to you. I don't care. All right? But I do like it when I can put face, go face to face with my wife or my little grandchildren. You know? I like, I like that. Why? Because the relationship has changed. Nothing weird about that. The, 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 the relationship is there. It's a love relationship, Right? This is what he's talking about here. He's face to face with the Father. The most possible intimacy between, within the Godhead. And then thirdly, he was God. There is only one God, Scripture teaches. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and all throughout Scripture, one God. But the Logos was God, and yet we are told that he was with God as well. What gives? How can he be God and, be, and with God at the same time? We're being introduced now to the doctrine of the Trinity that we talked about last week. There's one God. He exists in three persons. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each is co-eternal, co-equal, of the same substance, but with different functions and ministries to, to a certain degree. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that, to know that Jesus Christ is God? Well, because of verse 12, if nothing else... Verse 12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. My friends, you cannot be saved, you cannot become the children of God, if you don't know who who Jesus Christ is. You can't receive someone you don't know. And so it's so important that we don't just go through some little quick uh, four spiritual laws or whatever about who God is and say, do you want to believe this and pray a prayer? They must understand that Jesus Christ has always been, that Jesus Christ is eternal, that Jesus Christ is almighty God, and he came to die for your sins and save you from your sins. That's what you have to receive and know and believe to be saved. Secondly, he's a man. Not only is he God, he's also man. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is a man. There are two important pieces of information here that I want to point out. Number one, it says the Word became flesh. This is what we call the incarnation. God became man. Uh, 
And he wants us now to again, once again in this verse, to focus on the Logos. And the Logos became flesh. He's backing up to verse 1 when he's talked about the Logos. He left that, started talking about the light and so forth. Comes back to it now. He wants us to know that this one who is God, who is eternal, who's always been with God, this one who is God has now become flesh. He has taken on human nature. And he didn't cease to be God in the process. When it says he became man, that, that means that didn't mean that he stopped being God. He is the God-man. That's who he is. He became man without ceasing to be God in any sense. The word flesh means human nature, not just a body. Jesus Christ took on, our, on, a, on a nature of humanity as well as a body. And that means although he never sinned and his nature was not sinful, he, he suffered the effects of sin. Jesus Christ felt pain, he felt hunger, he suffered temptation, and he died. God cannot die, but Jesus Christ in the form of a man did die for us. He was truly human, yet fully God. Do you understand that perfectly? No, just like you don't understand the Trinity. You don't have to, to grasp every nuance of that to, to, to believe it and to adore it. Because Jesus Christ is the God-man. And it says, secondly here, he dwelt among us in verse 14. And we saw his glory. Or he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, look at that. But for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So now it tells us that he came to dwell among us. That word dwell means to tabernacle. To pitch a tent, to be a, to, and it could imply temporarity, temporality, that uh, he was only here for 33 years or so. He didn't live on earth all that time, just a short period of time, basically. And so it could imply being temporary, temporarily here. And perhaps there's partly of that on this, um, because when you pitch a tent, you don't usually stay too long. Now, I don't know about you, but... Uh, when I pitch a tent to go camp out, I'm not going to be there very long. Now, I know some of you really comfortable people talk about going camping, and you take your whole house with you. You know, you take, you take your RV, you take your trailer, you take whatever you want to take, and you call that camping. That's not camping, folks. I don't know what that is, but, but you want to camp? Do what I did the last time I did it, about three years ago. I pitched a tent in the backyard here behind the church, over by the pavilion, and me and four, four or five grandkids slept in a little tent made for three. And we were there all night long. Did we get some good sleep or what? Right? And the next morning we, un, we took the tent down and I've not been back in it. When I pitch a tent, I don't stay long. Okay, Jesus came to, on earth for a temporary period of time. But I think he has something else in mind here too. Because his word does mean tabernacling. And we have a reference to the glory of God, and he obviously is pointing us back to something in the Old Testament when Israel wandered through the wilderness and the glory of God was localized on the tabernacle. Now, I want to take you to Exodus chapter 40. And uh, as we do that, uh, this is a good verse for you to remember, and it's not hard to remember because it's the very last section of all of Exodus chapter of the whole book of Exodus. When you come to the end of Exodus, the people have come out of Egypt. They've been wandering for a while. 
The, the law of God has been given them. The tabernacle has been built. The priesthood has been sanctified. Everything is in place for them to worship God as God intended for them to worship Him. Except one thing. God wasn't in their presence. But in the very end of chapter 40, Exodus verse 34, we have these words. You can remember this because of where it is. It shouldn't be hard. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And that's a glory cloud, a Shekinah glory cloud. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Go down to verse 38. For throughout all their journeyings, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And there was fire on it by night in the sight of all, inside of the house of all of Israel. House of Israel. And so his glory was on the tabernacle. His glory came down and tabernacled on the tabernacle. And every time they looked at the tabernacle, they saw either the cloud or the fire that symbolized the actual glory, the very presence of God among them. They were not worshiping something that they didn't know. They were worshiping that which they could, could see in that form. His glory was there. They saw his glory. Now, that's not lost on John chapter 1. When we go back to John chapter 1, these, these people listening to these words knew exactly what he's talking about. When he says in this verse 14 that he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Remember the glory of Exodus, the glory of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. What was symbolized in the Old Testament, what was perhaps the, the introduction in the Old Testament of the glory of God has now been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came among us, he tabernacled among us, and we saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ in a way that the people in the Old Testament never were able to do. So the Old Testament has been fulfilled. This, this is the great point of what was being said here as well. And notice what he did. He not only tabernacled among us, not only did we get to see the glory of God in him, but he came full of grace and truth. It says that in verse 14, and it says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The grace and truth, we need grace. Grace to reach out to sinful humanity, to you and I. And we need uh, in, in love, and then we need his truth to tell us what is true, to tell us what is right in this life and in the life to come. He is full of grace and truth. A number of you have probably read some of the books by D.A. Carson, a world-class theologian who I often admire his, many of his writings. Carson wrote a book called The God Who Is There. And in that book, he told of a time when he was in college, uh, going to a college in Canada, and he was a chemistry major, not a theologian at the time. But he struck up a friendship with a Muslim man, and they often discussed and debated uh, Jesus Christ and who he was and debated a trinity. And, uh, and the, his Muslim friend had an awful time understanding what was, uh, anything about it. He never understood the trinity as a Muslim and that Jesus was God. They think he was a prophet, not God. So one day uh, Carson gave him a Bible. And this uh, Muslim man had never even held a Bible. And so this was pretty precious to him. And Carson said, why don't you read John? as we often tell new believers or people looking towards Christ. He, and so he did. But he, he didn't read it like a lot of us might do, speed read right through. 
He started meditating on the prologue of John, the first 18 verses. And he read it and meditated and went over and over and over and over the prologue of John. At Christmas time, Carson took his Muslim friend home to his family for Christmas. And after a bit of time being there, they went out to Ottawa to the, uh, one of the parliamentary things there, the, 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 one of the courthouses, to uh, see about the government there in Canada. And they took a tour of the, of the, house, of the state house and the parliament and so forth. At the end of the tour, they came back to the center place and, they, and the guide pointed them up to these uh, pillars and frescoes above them. And he said, up there are different pictures of different great people who are so important to government. And he pointed out, he said, there's Socrates over there. Socrates is, is there because government must be based on knowledge. And over here is, is uh, who, who was the other one he had? Uh, Aristotle. Because Aristotle, Aristotle represents wisdom and government must be based on wisdom. And over here is Moses. Because government must be, play, be based on law. The Muslim friend then piped up and said, uh, well, where is Jesus Christ? And the guide says, what did you say? And uh, so like most people that are in a country that has come from a different language, he just spoke up louder and slower. He says, where is Jesus Christ? And that really threw the guide. And he says, why should Jesus Christ be up there? And the Muslim who had been reading John, who was not a Christian yet, said, I've been reading the Christian Bible, and the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? Wow. You see, this Muslim man who was not yet a Christian had been captured by the very, very splendor and wonder and glory of Jesus Christ. And he saw in him what he had never seen in his, his religion. See, 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 Allah is a God of laws. God, Allah is a God of standards. And Allah is a God of terror and judgment and power. He had seen all of that in his deity. But he had never seen the idea that God, through Jesus Christ, would be full of grace and truth. He had, cap- he had been captivated by Jesus Christ as all of us should be. The third thing that we'll look at today, that we must know, you must know, my friend, if, to be a Christian, you must know that Jesus Christ is God. You must know Jesus Christ was incarnate. He came as, a God, as, as man. He is the great God-man. Thirdly, go to Mark chapter 10 for just a moment. Back up a couple books. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You must know that he is our Savior. In 1045, we have one of the great statements of the Gospels concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a very simple statement, but it is profound. And, it is, and you must know what it says. Verse 45, chapter 10, says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and look, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to set us free, to set us free from sin, to set us free from self, to set us free from death, 
to set us free from hell, Jesus Christ came to ransom us from all those things. That's why he came. If you watch the Super Bowl, you saw a very interesting commercial a time or two that's being funded by some very wealthy Christians who I think are well-meaning. The Greens who own Hobby Lobby and some others are putting up a billion dollars to put out these ads all across television and so forth. And there are ads, if you saw them, you might have seen them in other venues as well, in which we see a pathetic situation of humanity, someone going through very difficult times, and then at the end it says, Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us. Now, I believe the people that put that out are well-meaning. And I believe the message is partially right. Jesus does get us. Jesus knows us. Jesus loves us. Jesus understands us. He came and tabernacled among us because of that. But that, my friends, be careful, that is not the gospel. These folks are trying to give a message that would, would be attractive to the world. Jesus gets you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is a gospel that people hate. Because it's a gospel of the cross. It's a gospel in which we recognize our sinfulness and we turn from that sin in repentance. Jesus Christ didn't come to tell us he gets us. Jesus Christ came to ransom us from our sin. And that is a totally different message. If you can get in a conversation with someone about that, I would encourage you not to be highly critical, but to point out that's only the beginning of a message. The full message is the gospel of Christ. And what is that? Well, there's three things you have to know about the gospel and about, about Christ being our Savior. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. We looked at this passage in depth a few months ago or weeks ago even, maybe. But I want to go back to it because it's such a clear statement. There's three things you have to know to understand why, how Jesus ransomed us from sin. Number one, that he died in our place. Now again, you have to know this. And again, most people in America don't know this. And again, apparently a large chunk of evangelicals don't know this. So this is not just talking in the the wind here. This is vital. He died in our place, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That Christ died is a historical fact that few, few actually doubt, actually. But why did he die? He died for our sins, it says here. The word for is the idea of on behalf of. On behalf of our sins. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. That we would not have to pay the penalty for sin. That's what he's done. You understand that? Our world doesn't understand this. It doesn't get it. It doesn't fit with our mindset. Why would someone need to die for my sins? Because you are radically alienated from God and you're dead in your sins and you're an enemy of God and he had to die in your place because of that. In the 1950s, there was a missionary who had gone to to New Guinea to deal with a Stone Age tribe of people that were so far gone that they thought that the best thing they could do is kill you and eat your heart and use your skull for a pillow. That was their mindset. 
They were cannibals, had been cannibals forever, eating one another, eating, uh, challenging different groups. So for some reason, this group allowed this missionary to come to their tribe, and he spent several years there translating their language, giving, teaching them how to speak it, reading a little bit, and giving them the gospel for years. But after all those years, there was absolutely nobody turning to Christ. They didn't get it. As a matter of fact, when he told them the story of Judas betraying Jesus, they determined that Judas was the hero, not Jesus. That's how dark their hearts were. And then he said, after watching the 14th bloodbath out the front door of his hut, he decided this is a group of people that are so far gone, so dead in their sins, so dark in their hearts, that not even the gospel of Jesus Christ can penetrate them. There, there, there's no hope, absolutely no hope. Now, think about this. this man has been here for maybe a decade, and he's given up on this whole group of people. Just before he left, something wonderful happened, however. The tribal chief there met with another tribal chief of, the, of a rival group, a group of people they'd been, they'd been killing and warring with for centuries, perhaps. And the tribal chief, as they met together in a ceremony, brought out his infant son and gave it to the other chief. They called this little child the peace child. And by giving it to the other chief and the other chief accepting it, it brought peace between the tribes. There would be no more war between those tribes for at least as long as those people lived, those men lived, because of the peace child. This missionary had a flash. I've got my inroad. I've got something to take to him. And he came to them and said, look, Jesus Christ was God's peace child. Jesus Christ was given to us by God to reconcile us with him to bring us peace and life and forgiveness. And he began to dwell on that. And one after another, trickling in, started getting saved. And then more people. And as I understand it, according to the story, a great multitude of people came to Jesus Christ in that horrible and wretched area because they understood why Christ came. He came to die for their sins and to be, and bring peace between us and God the Father. What do you have to know to be saved? Look at the passage here. First of all, you need to know you're a sinner. You're in need of salvation. You have to recognize that you are lost in your sin. You are an enemy of God. You're not just somebody who makes mistakes. You are a person who's rebelled against the holy God of the universe. Secondly, you must recognize your helplessness. I think a lot of people know they're sinners, but they think they can do something about it. You must recognize your helplessness. You can do absolutely nothing, not a single thing, to be right before God. Next, you must realize that Christ did for you what you could never do for yourself. He died in your place. He took your sins upon himself. And finally, you need to understand he offers you the forgiveness of sin, the righteousness of Christ, he offers you what, the, the, the ability to be right before God by giving you a gift. And that gift is only received by faith alone. That's the gospel that he's talking about here. 
Here's another thing. Not only must we understand that to, to save us from our sins, Christ died for us, but also he rose from the dead. In verse 4 it says, And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. A lot of times when we give the gospel, we might even leave out the resurrection, but the, the, the people of the New Testament never did. The resurrection was essential. There is no good news if Jesus Christ is still in an empty tomb. There is no good news. It is part and parcel of the gospel message. Christ didn't just die on the cross. He conquered death. He rose from the dead. That's the good news. And he promised to give us that same ability of everlasting life for those that come to him. I'm giving a lot of stories today, but I read one this week that I thought really hit it. There was an eight-year-old boy in a Sunday school class of several other eight-year-old kids, and this young man had Down syndrome. And so because of that, as often happens, his peers didn't altogether accept him. On Easter Sunday, the, the Sunday school teacher said, I want you all to go out into the, to the, around the yard, and we'll give you these, uh, these pantyhose things from legs, that little egg things, you know. I want you to go out, I want you to find something that symbolizes resurrection and life, put them in there and bring them back. And so the class did that. They all went out and had a great time, came back. And they opened them up one by one, and as they did, the kids oohed and awed. They opened up one leg, and there was a flower. They opened up another egg, and it was, uh, it was uh, a butterfly and so forth. Then they opened one up, and it was empty. And somebody said, ah, somebody didn't do the assignment. And the little boy whose name was Philip said, that's mine, and I did do the assignment. And the kid said, you're always messing up, Philip. He said, I did do the assignment. The tomb is empty. And when they heard him say that, this poor little fellow could, who, who wasn't on par with him intellectually had outthought out all of them. The tomb is empty. What better could be symbolized than to open up the egg and see nothing there? A few months later, unfortunately, little Philip died of an infection that probably most kids would have been able to handle. And at his funeral, in his casket up front, his whole eighth grade, eight-year-old kids all marched down and put an empty egg in his casket, symbolizing that Jesus Christ is not in a tomb. He's resurrected from the dead, and little Philip will one day be resurrected from the dead as well. I don't know how much better it gets than that. I had to tell you that story. One more thing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. What, we see what he's done. What is he doing now? You need to know that he died for you in your place. You need to know that he is resurrected from the dead. But what is he doing now? Great verse in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 goes like this. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing now? We're, we're saved forever because of his intercession for us. Maybe, maybe I can frame it this way. We have, this is just imaginary to a certain degree, but it might be helpful so here is the Holy Father of the universe, and here is us. And Jesus takes us before the Father, and he introduces us to God. And he says, Father, here is a sinner. 
Here is somebody that doesn't deserve your love, doesn't deserve your salvation. They're, they're unrighteous. They're unholy. They deserve hell. But Father, I died for him. And I bring him to you for you to forgive their, his, his sin and make him your own. That's the intercession that he's doing for us right now. And you, you must understand that he's doing that. Let me close it out by going to, back to John chapter 14. One more thing I'd like for you to uh, know. Matter of fact, one more thing you must know. And that is that he's coming again. John 14. John 14, he's coming again. This precious passage we turn to often for comfort. He says, Jesus says to his disciples just the few hours before he would leave them, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, not, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Catch the essence of this. He's going away, Jesus says. He's going to prepare a place for his disciples. That's for you too, if you know him as Savior. And one day he's coming again. That's his promise. I've come once, I'll come again. I will return. I will come again. And when I come again, I'm going to take you to be with me. Now, I've prepared a place for you. Matter of fact, every picture we get of eternal, our eternal destiny, where we're going to live forever in Scripture is glorious, beyond description. Just beyond description. Check out chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. You, you just can't get your head wrapped around it, of what's going to be ours. It's going to be glorious. But the picture is not of Jesus taking us at the point of the rapture or our death or even the angels doing this and taking us and dumping us off at our new abode, the place he's prepared for us. And saying, here it is. This is yours. I prepared it for you. It's glorious, isn't it? It's wonderful, isn't it? And look at what else I've prepared. This whole new world and, and new heaven and the whole universe. Cheers to enjoy forever and ever. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But that's not the best. He says, I, I take you to be with me. You're going to be with me forever. He didn't dump us off at our new house and say, hey, see you around. Uh, I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe a millennia or two will show up and have coffee. That's what he said. He says, you're going to be with me forever. What a thing. You see, heaven is heaven because who's there? And who is there is Jesus Christ. And you and I will sit with him and talk with him and be with him for all of eternity. That's going to happen, folks. And you need to know that. And you need to know that so that your heart is prepared for his coming again. Every Christian throughout the ages has had in their hearts the blessed hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a song we're going to close with in just a moment that we sang at Christmas time. It's called Joy to the World. Isaac Watts wrote it in 1719 as part of his sermon that morning on Psalm 98. It's a paraphrase of sorts of Psalm 98. But it was not about the incarnation. It was not about the Christmas season or the coming of Christ the first time. It's a, it's a song about the joy to the world when Christ returns. And we're going to sing that song in closing today, as we think of joy to the world, our Christ is, come, is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for all we've seen today about you. What a, what a powerful subject. I don't know how you could do any better on the subject. Lord, I pray that this is understandable, clear, helpful. I pray your spirit is at work in the hearts of some folks here, that they might want to come to you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.